this is David Wilson and welcome to episode 63 of On Another Track. I suppose you went fishing because it was a great way of just relaxing, wasn't it? You worked really, really hard. I loved it. I loved the, the challenge. Dude, I fished the South Esk for three years. Uh, you can't do it today, but in 1987, that week I caught 18 salmon. That's the voice this week of my guest, Tony Bone. If you heard of groups like The Searchers or Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, or even the Baron Knights, then you've probably seen one of Tony's suits. Welcome along to my podcast series on another track. We're here to explore people and places from around the world. We hear the stories that have transformed my guest's journey and help them get on another track. It's not always pretty, but if you need that practical advice to figure out the roadblocks ahead, then you can't go wrong by learning from other people's mistakes. It's an enlightening experience and a great journey. Getting to know Tony Bone, Taylor Extraordinaire, was a complete fluke. I happened to see one of his comments on an old photo of a British pop group, the Baron Knights, and his comment about making their suits. I thought if he'd made the suits for them, he's probably made suits for other pop idols of the 60s. And I wasn't wrong. Listen as Tony takes us on an amazing journey through swinging London with pop royalty, and ends up in Africa teaching the locals how to install irrigation systems. He even gets serenaded by Kenneth Kuunda, the leader of Zambia. It's a veritable who's who of the 60s and 70s. Let me set the scene. We're in a pub in the UK somewhere in South London. And we grab a couple of pints of beer. We sit down and we have a chat about old times. That's how we got started. Tony, we met really just by unusual and circuitous route, really, through Facebook. It was just the, the fact that you'd put a comment on the Baron Knights of all things saying you were their bloody tailor. I'm thinking, i got to interview that guy. So, Tony Bone, <laughs> tailor extraordinaire from the 60s, welcome along. Thank you very much. That's all right. Facebook is an amazing medium. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. It really brings people together, doesn't it? Well, the film that I put onto Facebook, really, the 1962 was done by Anglia Television. They came to Hitchin to do a programme on Hitchin, and I was on Facebook and I, I, and I put a photograph of the carnival, and a guy got in touch with me and said, oh, I made that film. Would you like a copy? Next week I got a copy. He, got, he sent me a copy. Wow. So I downloaded wow. it and it was all digitised. It was wonderful. And that was all from 1962, was it? Yeah. So why why did they want to interview you in 1962? What was that all about? Well, because I was making... I'll say, if I send you a copy of the film, I'll do it on WeTransfer. Yeah. You you can... It's all about Hitchin, which is, I don't know if you know Hitchin. Not very well. Hitchin's a wonderful little town. They reckon it's the most desirable place to live out of small towns outside uh, London, Hitchin and St Albans. And I had this photograph of, of me looking up towards Windmill Hill when the carnival was coming down. I put it on Facebook. Two days later, this chap got in touch with me. He said, I remember you. I made that film. I filmed it for Anglo Television. And now we've become good friends. It, well, there you are. That's the wonders of technology. And it was the same. Oh. It's the same for me because I saw this photograph of the Baron Knights. And of course, from my childhood, being kind of, you know, my mid to late 50s, the Baron Knights were pretty big in the 70s. And they did the really funny songs. They did the kind of takeoff. Oh, amazing. But before that, they were really big in the 60s, weren't they? They were really popular. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they, I made their first suits I made in 1962 or 63. 
Incredible, incredible. And so were the Baron Knights just one of many of the different groups that you got involved with? It all started, David, by, from a guy called Victor Sutcliffe, who I was at school with. He sat next to me at school, at Norton Road School. Um, he, he went off and joined the RAF and got posted to Christmas Island. Then he came back and didn't know what to do with himself. He went to London and got a job as an impresario with the Tito Burns Agency. Right. Uh, I, I'd made him a suit and he went in there. Tito said, I really like that suit. Where'd you get it? He said, my friend Tony made it. He said, well, get him to make me one. So off I tried to London. And that first day that I went into Tito's office was the first day that Lulu came to town. So I met her that day. And of course, Tito Burns agency, I, I made for, for, for Vic Billings, who was the manager of Dusty Springfield. Um, and, and I met them all, Mike Raspoli. And it was just an incredible, it went on from there, the searchers, Billy J. Kramer, Gino Washington. I mean, I've got, I've got all, all of these ones here, like um, oh, just amazing. Um, Tony Hatch, uh, Elkie Brooks's brother, who was, uh, you remember Elkie Brooks? I remember her well. Her brother was uh, Tony McDonough, who was the drummer with Billy Jay. The Searchers, John McNally and Mike Pender, Chris Curtis. And I made their first suits when they were with Tony, when Tony Jackson was with him. Wow. Of course, he, he moved wow. out and, and uh, I think Frank Allen came in then. But yeah, well, they were amazing years. And, I, you know, I just really... I really enjoyed it. It was hard work, but I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, okay, so we've got to re we've got to back the bloody bus up here because this is this is amazing. This is like um, I'm going to be very rude here, but this is like music porn to me, right? I'm loving this, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, but but the point being is right now. Here's the connection that we have, right? Lulu is related through my family. She's my dad's second cousin, right, from Glasgow. Oh, fantastic. All right. So here's the thing. And people on the show know this. I've mentioned it before. So, of course, she used to sing with my Uncle Willie's band. He was the oldest son in the Wilson clan, you know, where my dad was from. And he had a band in Glasgow. And Lulu, her name is Marie Laurie. Uh, that's a real name. Yeah, Marie Laurie. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So she, I mean, I didn't get to know her well. No. But she was in the office the first day I went there. Well, of course, she's so diminutive. I mean, she reminds me a little bit of... Um, uh, Brenda Lee, she's got that amazing voice, yeah. isn't she? A little Miss Dynamite. And you know? she's bouncy and beautiful, you know. So Absolutely, with that wee Scots accent from Glasgow, you know. Yeah, I said, we need him down here. He should be way back home. Him, him, not home. Him, him, him absolutely. But, yeah, so it's interesting the links already that we have between each other. That's just incredible. But So so tell me, okay, let's, let's rewind it a little bit. So tell me a little bit about your life, how you – Decided to become a tailor. I mean, did you do national service like your friend? No, I played in the military band in the um, reserves for four years, and I got away from national service. I started my apprenticeship at 14, uh, 15 years old, working for a, a military tailor, making mess kits and with the Royal Navy and the, and the local Air Force Station, all the mess kits. Because even in those days, what they called a British war, more an, an officer's overcoat, was like a thousand pound and that was a lot of money wow yeah seriously yeah then i then i went to work uh when i when i finished my apprenticeship i went to work in london i worked for a tailor in berwick street called sam arcus and then i went across the road and worked for a guy called alfred harley where, who used to make cliff richards in the shadow suits 
And and then I got a job with a military tailor in um, Plymouth. Got you. I used to go on all the, the ships like the Bulwark and the Ark Royal and all the naval air stations, Coldrose. And it was just a, a wonderful life, you know. And and in those days, I was earning like £22 a week, which was like phenomenal. That was excellent. I was like a millionaire. Well, because I had a car, which they had to, that was including my expenses, but it was such good fun. Considering the last year of my apprenticeship, I think I was earning about £6.50. Incredible. It just shows you, and you're right, because I was just about to say, my dad was in the British military from 1960, and his salary or his wage per week was £4.50 or something, or £4.10 shillings or whatever it was, you know, as an apprentice soldier. But you were earning £22, so you were really flying high. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a wonderful car, which I went down to. I stayed down there for nearly a year in Plymouth. I lived in a, near Paynton, near, oh, wow. near Torquay. And I used to drive into Plymouth and then go along to Weymouth, Coldrose and all the naval air stations. And I'd get the Liberty boat out into um, the Sound and go aboard the Ark Royal or, or the Bulwark, which was commissioned then. So it was kind of like, it was exciting. I kind of want to dissect things because there's so many good stories here. So let's let's focus on the music for a minute because I want to I want to just talk about yeah. that for a minute. Okay, so you then went back, when you come back from Plymouth, you obviously started working for a London tailor. That's correct. Can you just repeat their name again? Sam Arcus. He was in Berwick Street. They used to make all the Italian suits and used to make all the guys from Commercial Road and all the guys from down... Uh, all the villains, you know, people like Jack Spot and Setti and all those. And the craze. Yeah, well, I don't, I, the craze never came in, but that, that guy Setti, he was the one that they chopped up and dropped him over the marshes. My goodness. Well, yeah, that's another story, isn't it? You know. Well, I, yeah, but I, I left because it, it was kind of like, he was a lovely guy, but he was a typical, a, a typical Jewish taskmaster. Not that Jews are taskmasters, because I know some wonderful Jews, but he was he was kind of like, I know when my father died, because my father died at 57. Oh, that's young. I didn't go in, then I went in and I said, my, my father died and the funeral was in two weeks Saturday. He said, what time's the funeral? I said, I said I think it's about 11 o'clock. He said, well, I hope you're coming in after after the funeral. Wow. So I just told him to stuff his job and walked out. Too right, too right. I totally agree. Well, you know, and the thing is, why – actually, can I ask the history about tailoring a little bit? Why do you think yeah. so many of the Jews were in tailoring, for instance? Because they had a good reputation. Oh, fabulous. And they made some great stuff. Oh, the Polish Jews were incredible. Oh, okay. Tailors. Okay, so what's the history? Do you know kind of the history? Well, it, is, it goes back many, many years. And, I mean, the Polish Jews came over here – you know, just after the war or during the war, and they set up workshops in London. And I used to get what I used to, I knew one in a place called Fournier Street, which was just off Spitalfield Market. And I, I went to this place and, and he used to help me. I used to make the suit ready for the first fitting and then fit it. And then I take, when I got really busy, I mean, come Christmas time, I was balancing out about 10 suits a week. You know, I mean, in those days, I was getting like 15 quid a suit. So it wow. was, after, after all expenses, it was it was good business. Yeah, so 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 the Jews then really got a good reputation for making great quality suits, eh? Oh, yeah, the Jewish, the Jewish ones, the Italians and the Cypriots used to come in and they were absolutely amazing, uh, fantastic uh, tailors. Everything was cleanly finished. I mean, 
you know, when you think most of the Savile Row people that are making Savile Row, like Stanbury's and people like that, they have in-house workshops. Well, a lot of those tailors, tailors in Sackville Street and Savile Row, they use the East End workshops to make their stuff. They've got trouser makers um, and uh, and coat makers. Okay. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Very interesting. So so let me ask the really obvious question. Now, I, I remember I, I as a kid, my dad was in the British military, so we went to Hong Kong. You go in, in the morning and have a suit made by the afternoon, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was incredible. And, I mean, they were okay. They did the job. But really, what is the essence of a good suit? Where does that start? It starts basically you've, you've, you've got to have a good cutter and my my partner Lenny Briggs he was a good cutter I met him working at Sam Arthur's um you've got to have you've got to have the hand finish you've got to get you've got it's got to be clean Uh, I'll send you um a couple of years ago I did a little film a place in Hertfordshire where they 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 built this whole barn where they have people in and they get people from the BBC down and it was a, a whole morning on the aspects of tailoring and what happens with tailoring. I'll send you a copy. It was just really interesting. And, and it is, it's all about, I mean, for the first year, uh, all I did was sponging and pressing and, 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 and learning how to baste. Really? Yeah. 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 And then, well, you're in that film. You're, that's what I was doing on there. I was putting the, the, the basting stitches in so that the, you could match the forepart up with the back of the jacket to the stitches. And then, you know, that we used to get it ready for a fitting. I'd get the fitting done, recut it, then fit it again for the final fitting, then take it to the workshop and get it finished. Whereas in my days, I used to be doing the finishing. Right. You did it from start to finish effectively. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, I mean, because I, I was in a very, very um, small tailors, I think there was... There was a lovely old boy who, who was very, very good. He used to do collars and sleeves. But I went all through it doing jetted pockets, collars and sleeves, and hand collars, what they call leaf-edge hand collars, which is all turned out by hand, sleeves in by hand. And 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 he was he was a good tailor. I used to go, he, I used to go, he sent me to London to the Tailor and Cutter Academy, which is in Gerrard Street, where I did a cutting course and that. I used to go up there once a week on a, on a Wednesday for for a year. It was very interesting because I was I was very keen on learning the trumpet. And just around the corner from opposite the Flamingo Jazz Club, there was a place called Dancy Court. And in Dancy Court, there was a Canadian lady that played the trumpet for the Royal Canadian Philharmonic, and it was called Brass Parker's Brass Studios. And I think her name was. Ellie Parker, and she taught a method where they hung the trumpet on wires from a beam and you didn't hold it against you. It was called the non-pressure method. And you had to get the embouchure of your mouth. And, and I, I, I mean, I went there for 18 months, but in the end, you know, I was doing so well with the tailor and I didn't get time to do anything else. Well, this, this is really great. And so from your perspective, because you've got that fine eye and you really know about your craft, can you spot a style of suit through the ages that comes from a particular tailor? Are you that absolutely, good? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And some of the finest suits in the world that lots of people go to uh, Italy to buy, 
uh, is a guy in Italy called Erman Giulio Zegna. And when I was an apprentice, I, I used to go to Milan and I went to their factory. They were purely cloth manufacturers. Now they make. But the Italians, the Italian tailoring is unbelievable. They are. The Italian and the Polish are absolutely amazing tailors. What, what makes them so good, Tony? What is it, do you think? I don't know. It's just uh, concentration. I mean, there is obviously, I, I mean, Greek, Spanish, there's everybody's, some, somebody in each in each country must be good at the job they do because lots of the, I mean, a lot of the stuff now comes from Czechoslovakia. Incredible, incredible. Look, I'm dying to ask you because it's like on the tip of my tongue. Who made the classic Beatles suits, the ones where they didn't have the colour? Uh, that was a guy called Dougie Millins. He, and he was in Old Compton Street. And he was a Jewish guy. Really? You know, those Prussian collars. I, I, worked, I, was in, I worked in the Congo for a while and... Mobutu, in those early days when it was called Zaire, he decreed that all of his ministers should have Prussian collars. So they all had those Beatle-type suits. If you look back, and in fact, if you look at the, the, the time that uh, uh, George Foreman and uh, Mohammed Ali went to fight in Zaire, you'll see that all of the ministers have got those suits on. So where did that style come from? Because it was very cutting edge, because the Beatles themselves, you know, they, they worked really hard. They did their 10,000 hours, didn't they, in Hamburg, and they got their craft just right, and they got a couple of good breaks, you know, with Parlophone and... Oh, yeah. You know, but what... But Dougie Millions designed those suits. He did. Oh, so Dougie... But he, he, it was an, it's an easy design, because it's a design that's used by lots of military apparel as well. If you see a military coat with a top, and he just made it into a normal suits. And he was a very good, I mean, he did, he made many, many suits for them. I mean, I met him several times, but I, I didn't have the fortunate thing of making them suits, but they, I had, when I, when I, I got divorced and when I, before I got divorced, I'd been to Richmond studios with my eldest daughter, Debbie, and I got some fabulous pictures of the Beatles walking off the, the boat that had come down the Thames. I left all those in the attic when I left. And I think I've got one somewhere that I'm going to try and dig out. But I've got some great photographs of them. you got to, yeah, you got to get those on Facebook, man. But um, so, OK, so going back to the, the, the design of the suit, he, how did he get the commission? Do you know the kind of history behind it? Because there must have been many tailors that, that potentially could have made stuff for the Beatles. I think it was through Brian Epstein who was a wonderful guy, who, a, a contact of Brian Epstein's, it might have been Tony Bramwell. Um, they got recommended to Dougie Millins, and I'll give him his due. He did make some cracking stuff for them. Uh, he did. In those 60s, there was lots of, re in the West End and Shepherd's Bush and that, there was Cyril Castle and the other guy in the Shepherd's Bush. They all favoured going for the pop groups. I suppose it was only because I'd got introduced to Tito Burns through Vic Sutcliffe, because he liked his suit, that I, I managed to get on the bandwagon. Okay, so talking about where you were coming from then, so who was the first band that you actually kitted out? Was it the Baron Knights or was it another group? It was, yeah. No, it was the Baron Knights. I think that, that I made, I made a, a, I can't think of their name, they were a little local group that used to play in the, um, in the, the dance hall in uh, um, Stevenage. And I made them a suit, and I made a, um, in those days, tonic mohair was the thing, you know, just a shiny. And, and there was a guy there called uh, Gerard Gelino, 
and he used to run the, the, the place there, and I made him a suit. And I made quite a few suits for the lesser-known groups, but the Baron Knights um, were, the, were the first pick. No, the Searchers were the first. Uh, the Searchers, because when I went to Tito's office, and I made for Tito and uh, Vic, and Bobby V. I mean, it, it, all those were in the early days. Bobby V was a fantastic customer. Oh, my goodness. Seriously. Yeah, I must have made. He was such a wonderful man. He was the gentleman of pop. I must have made Bobby V about 10 outfits. Okay, so so let's uh, let's kind of just dissect it a little bit. Okay, so you had the Baron Knights. You had the Searchers, which are one of my favourite groups by far. What were they looking for in a suit? Were you having to be a little bit avant-garde, a little bit sort of cutting edge, or was it just a quality suit of a traditional cut that they were looking at? Well, they they said to you, what do you suggest? I said, why don't you try an Norfolk ad design on an Norfolk jacket, which is the ones that you see, the Czech ones, and they had patch pockets about, pleated back. I mean, they were incredible. And they just, like, they were recognised through those all the time. I put a picture of the last suits that I ever made for the Baronites when they were performing in Las Vegas. And they 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 got kind of crazy then. They had one four part in a check and then blue collar and patch pockets and flared cuffs. You know, they all were trying to get a little bit like Gino Washington. When he came to the shop for the Ram Jam band, I think the front leg of his trousers, because they were enormous flares then, I think. One side of the trousers was yellow and it was red. You know, not really. It, to me, it was stage wear. It wasn't, it wasn't Savile Road type going to Sunday lunch on. Yeah, well, but, but that's fair enough. I mean, it's nice that you were able to sort of diversify a little bit and kind of do that. And- You've got to give them what they want. And I, a friend, of the, one of my apprentices that stayed with me, Alan Terrett, um, he now lives in Gold Beach, Oregon, he came over two years ago to see me and the girls. He was an integral part of my life. And he was he was a lovely. He, he joined us when he was 17, when he learned to cut. He went to cutting school. And uh, and he was really, and then he met this girl. He went, he bought the most wonderful little MGA. Do you remember those little MGAs? Remember them well, yeah, absolutely. He went off touring to the south of France. And he met this uh, American girl. And... Um, that was it. It was all over. He he married her and went off to live in America. Incredible. And we've stayed in touch the whole time. You know, he's got a wonderful family and it, it's just been an amazing, I've been very, very lucky. Okay. So let's kind of just go back. So you had the Baron Knights, the, the Searchers, you, you met Lulu. I mean, you know, these are names that are really kind of like the A-listers from the 60s. What what eventually happened though? Did you see a change in styles as they went from the what I call the British invasion style with the Beatles? Yeah, they started going psychedelic and wearing shirts, and the Rolling Stones were wearing clothes with holes in them. My mate Vic Sutcliffe booked the Rolling Stones to play at the Kaiser Bondor, the big stocking factory in Bulldog. I think they got twelve pounds fifty for the night. Oh, my goodness, seriously? I think that was 1960 or 61. That's right. And I saw Tom Jones a week before he made It's Not... Two weeks before he made It's Not Unusual at the Officers Club in, in, in Chicksands, American Air Force Base Officers Club. I went with my wife and, uh, and a, some friends. We saw Tom Jones there. He was with a group. They were I can't remember what the name was, but he didn't sing It's Not Unusual. And then two weeks later, he'd met Gordon Mills, 
and it, it it all changed for him. Yeah, the rest is history, isn't it? I mean, yeah, and when, I couldn't believe it when I was in in Beverly Hills about fifteen years ago. His house was right on the peninsula, just opposite Beverly Hills. I thought, shall I go and knock on the front door? <laughs> I hope you're enjoying this great interview with Tony Bone, the tailor to the stars in the 60s. It's like going down the pub and speaking to your granddad, your great uncle. Isn't it fantastic? Well, next I wanted to ask Tony a little bit more about his personal life and really where family came from. And uh, what was that journey all about? Well, my dad was a, a sailor. He joined the Navy as a boy entrance fought in two world wars and come out and died at 57. I mean, he was, I was lucky. I had wonderful parents. I had two brothers and a sister. One of my brothers and my sister's still alive, but my elder brother died four years ago in Australia. Um, he went to Australia. He, my dad wouldn't let him join the Navy. He said, no, you're not joining the Navy. So he became a 10 pound pom. I remember those well. Yeah. He went to Australia and, uh, he was, he was very clever. He was, he was very clever. He could put his hand to anything. He started, he went to night school and learned about building that, became a builder. But he's, he loved fossicking, what they call fossicking, looking for stones and that, like, you know. Oh. And he learned to cut and polish. And he used to go, he moved up to a place called Rubyvale, which is in northern Australia. Um, and he used to go fossicking and get these um, sapphires, like black sapphires and, and he used to cut and polish them. Beautiful. He was amazing. And his one of his daughter married one of the guys down near um, down in, in Victoria, near the Warren Bungle Mountains. And her husband and his partner, they have an opal mine in Cooper Pedy. Oh my goodness. That's incredible, isn't it? I've been out there several times. I, I went out for my brother's 80th. And uh, yeah, I've, it's been it's been good. I love Australia, but to me, Africa's the only country really. I, if I want, if I didn't really want to live in this UK, and, and I'm, you know, Africa, you've got to be young and you've got to, you got to be a bit sort of like daring because it can be very dangerous. Well, actually, I want to shift Africa to the side for a minute because I want to talk about that specifically. But I just wanted to finish off about the family history. All right, because. If you go back, if you've done the genealogy and gone back in Ancestry.com to find out where the bone name comes from and did you have any famous yeah, ancestors? You know? They came from France, they were the Huguenots. And my dad was one of 13, 12 or 13 children. My. And it was amazing, really. And his, all his brothers and sisters were amazing as well. And I remember my nan very, very well. She was unbelievable. And uh, him and my mum were sort of like just inseparable. Seriously, yeah. And I had such wonder. I'm so lucky. So many children have parents that, that don't. I mean, I, my parents loved all of us. I mean, that was my dad was quite strict, but he was always fair. And in fact, I had the great pleasure of making him a suit when my sister got married. I was still just finishing my apprenticeship and I made him a suit, which he was very proud of when my sister got married and she married an Australian sailor and went off to live in Australia. It's incredible, isn't it? Eh? Yeah. And I do love Australia and, I, and I've got, I've got so many, I, I don't know how many sort of cousins and grandchildren I've got there, 
But one of my dad's favorite sisters, his daughter, lives in Canada. She lives in, oh, what's that island? Oh, Vancouver it's Island. Cold. Vancouver Island. She lives, yeah. no, 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 it's the other. Oh, Newfoundland. New, yes, yeah. yeah. And she's an artist. She does all these lino cousins. I mean, most of the family were really, they're very talented people. My cousin is dead now. He he was a, a naval diver. What's the famous naval frogman? Um, top, uh, oh, crabs, crabs, crab, 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 yeah, crab, Buster Crab. And he used to go. He, my my cousin Philip uh, Ward. He was a little skinny guy, same guy. And I used to be sort of like his protector. Well, as time went by and we didn't see each other. He put on a lot of weight when he came out of the Navy and he became a professional wrestler. Oh, really? By the name of Philip Nordoff. And he used to wrestle all of these. In fact, I made quite a few suits for professional wrestlers. One of them was a, um, a guy called Prince Kumali. And his chest, unexpanded, was 52 and expanded. It was nearly 60. In those days, it was yards and inches i made this this uh, prince Cromalia suit and his chest unexpanded was 50 something and he expanded it expanded about 10 when he went like that his lats and his pecs come up big normally it takes three and a half yards or, or three and a quarter yards to make a suit for a normal person that's a two-piece for him it was four and a quarter yards oh my goodness gracious because almost, it was so big yeah it's almost the amount of material you have to put into a bleeding kilt yeah, I used to make kilts when I was apprenticed as well. Oh my goodness, seriously! Uh, look, we've got so yeah, we've got so many avenues to go down here. So I'm going to try and keep us focused for a minute because it's. Uh, I just want to finish off family for a second, okay? Uh, you talked about dad's side of the family, who knows? And I mean, that's an amazing piece of history. Yeah. What about mum's side of the family? What did she do, and where did she come from? Mum came from London. She was uh, a pastry cook for Lord Avon. Interesting. That he was. Lord, Lord Avon's son was one of the ministers, wasn't he? The one with the funny moustache in Atley's car, I can't remember. He was a conservative minister, I can't remember what his name was. But yeah, and, and I had wonderful parents. I mean, my dad died at 57, 58. My mum had a bad leg, an ulcerated leg, and she was desperate to see her grandchildren in Australia. And they said to her, there's only one way you can go, that's if your leg gets better. Uh, which we don't think it will, or you could have your leg amputated. So she said, okay, amputate it. Wow. And 18 months to the day that she had her leg cut off and learned to walk again, my brother and I and his, my brother and my wife and my children, we all took her to Heathrow Airport. She got on a plane, flew off to Australia, and she lived till she was 90-odd. Incredible. Just shows you. And where did, where did her family come from? And you said London, but do you know the history of the family at all? Well, yeah, her father, um, Teddington, her father was uh, the chief coach builder for Green Line Coaches. Oh, I know Green Line Coaches. Yeah, of course. In those days, they had all posh wood in and out. All of his carpentry equipment, like, you know, the spoke shaves and the different bevels and all that. My brother still got those. They're in a big trunk. They live just on the bend as you're going over towards Twickenham over the Teddington Bridge. And they live just in those big houses there. And she had a, um, a brother. One night during the war, he went out and uh, she never saw him again. He never came back. So she thinks he probably got killed in the raid. Oh, you know, that's interesting you should talk about that because I know I had a very good friend from Fulham in London and he was there during the war. 
And some of the stories you told me how the Londoners just put up with it, you know, like they would go, he had the gas works opsum, you know, in Fulham, right? So they, yeah. they, they'd go to the, the air raid shelter, the place would get blown up. He'd get back, there's no bleeding roof on the house, right? But he still has to go to bed, right? So he's reading his comic by the light of the gas works, which is on fire across the road. <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, I know. But, but here's the thing, right? It, the, like They just got on with life, you know what I mean? It, they had to. Amazing, yeah. amazing story. So many people did so well out of it. I mean, do you remember? I remember, because I'm that age, of all the bomb sites in London that were taken over and made for car parks. Oh, that's right. And they were taken over by a guy called Donald Goslin, who got knighted. And he took over, and in the end, because he looked after them for such a long time, they let him keep them, and it went. He went under the name of NMPC, and he was a good client of mine. I used to shoot with him, and he was the one that introduced me to Chapman Pincer. Do you, have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah, the spy writer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, it's been an amazing journey, really. Okay, let's uh, look. Oh gosh, I got so many questions for you, but let's let's focus, right? Let's talk about okay. Botswana, right? So you got your apprenticeship, you you worked down in Plymouth, you came back to London, you you you, know, you did all those suits for those great groups in the sixties, and that's a story in itself. How the heck did you decide to go to Botswana? Well, I used to love fishing and shooting, and in the in the in the sixties, I was making suits for people like a guy called Harab Al-Zuhair, who was from Iraq, and, and, and another friend of him who was uh, married to the daughter of King Farhad's security chief. Um, the first guy was Zahawi, and the second guy was Zuhair. In fact, I still keep in touch with his son, and because I, I taught his son to shoot. I was always interested in shooting and fishing, so when I got the shop, it was just, it was kind of like a, a different life and it was just so exciting. And, and I, I know I was making, what made me really want to do it was I was making some soups for a farmer who, where I first got married, I moved in a village called Eaton Soakham, which was near St. Neots. And I was making some soups for a farmer and he was a very, very big man. And I was making about uh, a shooting suit, city suit, so, um, and uh, I didn't go and see him for a while to finish the fittings, and he died. Oh, my. Yeah, and his wife his wife said to me, she said, I don't know what to do. So I said, well, I said, I'll probably be able to use some of them. I said, but difficult to find another customer. She said, look, I know you're interested in shooting. He's got some guns. Would you like one of his guns? Well, when she showed me his gun, she got a cabinet. It was full of guns. And she said, he's got a pair of those. She said, but there's an odd one there. And it was a Purdy. Nice. And so I said, oh, I said, I don't think my, his three suits are, uh, uh, don't run to the equality of a, of a Purdy. She said, oh, take it. She said, if you ever sell it and you make some money, give me some, you know. So I took it and I, 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 I sort of like cleaned it all up and got a case for it and everything, you know. And uh, I sold it about. I think about seven years when I moved from Eaton Soken, I used to shoot at a place called Croxton and I was shooting there one day and this chap says, oh, I really like that gun. He said, how much do you want for it? And just jokingly, I said, oh, I said, I'd take 15 grand for it. He said, would you really? I said, yeah. So I sold it. Seriously? Yeah, I thought to myself, well, this is easier than tailoring. <laughs> <laughs> but, but 
okay, so so let's let's figure this out. So you, look, draw me the map, okay? How the heck you got to Botswana and Africa? It was it through the shooting link, was it? My main place I went to first of all was Zambia. Oh no, Zambia! That was uh, Northern Rhodesia originally, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I was on the on the Zambezi River. For I've got wonderful videos that I'll send you of Kenneth Kawanda singing to us. Are you serious? The the president of Zambia. Yeah, and we did a program down there where we were teaching the farmers to irrigate and grow and uh, supply water to the. I mean, today. It is one of the nicest tourist areas you could ever meet. But when when I went there, I was marooned there one Christmas and I was the only white man with 7,000 black people. Incredible. But they were wonderful. I'll tell you what, the people that live in the unpopulated areas and don't live in the towns like Lusaka and that, they are just such lovely people. I mean, they just do everything for you. Some things they do for you, you don't want them to do, like, I had a beautiful pair of suede shoes. I kept watching them in the river. <laughs> but, but okay, so was, again, I'm just trying to find the roadmap here. So did you end up going to Northern Rhodesia or Zambia uh, on, hol- on holiday? No, no. What happened was <clears throat> when I was still, when I was still uh, finishing with the gun shop, um, I, I sort of like very interested in guns, but I was also very, my son-in-law introduced me to a guy who was making, who was doing, um, pyrolysis systems, energy from burnt waste and organic substance. And I was uh, I was in London one day, and I was in uh, I was with I think I was with Donald Goslin in the Montcalm Hotel, and I was talking to him and that. And this Rhodesian guy I was listening, and he said because um, I we used to do those walking stick guns that were like a, a walking stick but had a gun inside. Right. You can't, they're illegal now, the 38 or, or, or a 410. And I was talking to him, and this guy came over and he started chatting and everything, and I got to know him, and he, he said that he was from Rhodesia, and he was an incredible guy. He was a bit like Stuart Granger, like, you know, and was talking and that, and he said, uh, he got me very interested. He said, because I had a lot of contacts in America at the shot shows and everything, where I used to go to buy and sell guns, he said... Uh, would I be interested in coming to, to Zambia? So I did. I think I first went there in 1980, 84. And he said, come and work with me. So I did. I worked with him in on the lower Zambezi Valley. And it was great because with my knowledge of fishing and shooting, people that came there, I used to look after them for fishing and shooting. And I used to generally help, you know. I mean, I bought. With him, and he paid for them, but we bought together six old army lorries, you know, with the, um, uh, the, they were like London buses, big old Leyland hippos. That's right. And we shipped them to Durban, and I flew to Durban and drove them from Durban to Zambia. Oh, my goodness. That must have been the longest drive of your life. All the way up over the Drakensberg and then down through Ladysmith up to the border at Gaborones, across into Botswana, all the way up through the Kalahari, through the desert, all the way up to where Richard Burton and Liz Taylor got married, Choby Lodge. We drove all the way up to there and then crossed the river there into Zambia, drove through Bulawayo, then out through Livingston and then down into the valley, in, into the Zambian Valley. I mean, I, I, I guess I think it was probably about Two and a half, three thousand miles. How long did it take you? Four days. 
I mean, these lorries, the top speed was only, I think the top speed was 40 k's an hour. Oh, that's right. The old hippo lorries were very slow. I mean, we drive, I was my friend Gary, who unfortunately died last year. Wonderful guy. He was he was Farley's son. He was an amazing young man. And we were driving through the desert, and these bloody ostriches <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they used to pass us. But we had one. We had wonderful times. I mean, oh my. One time we broke down. We had to put the lorries into the bush. And we were laying there under the lorries at night, you know. And in the morning, we saw all these bushmen come through on these little burrows, don donkeys, with their spears hunting. And they were amazing people, you know, because we got lots of food and everything on board. We gave them tins of food and everything. Said, look after the lorry that had broken down until we can get the part and come back. And when we came back, they hadn't touched any of the food. And they wouldn't touch it until we'd taken the lorry. Incredible. I mean, they're amazing yeah. people. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, it's interesting you talk about Zambia and, and have your northern Rhodesia like that because I did a little bit of research because there's a place called Abercorn in Zambia. I know, which yeah. Is at the north. Yeah. And it was amazing how many of the white settlers originally just stayed on after independence to help the country. Yeah. And it was one of the few countries, I think, from my research that was quite stable in Africa for a long time, wasn't it? Oh, it was. I mean, Kwanda had his had a lot of bad publicity to start with, but a friend that I was at school with, his father was the chairman of a company called London Central Me LCM. He was in the navy, came out of the navy, married a South African girl, and started a farm in Kitwe in Zambia, which is up in the top. He got the he got the MBE uh, uh, or the OBE because he was an amazing guy. I mean, he had thirteen children with a South African girl. And they, they had this farm up there and he used to breed chickens and Brahmin bulls. And, and he built schools at his own cost for the children. Incredible. Um, an ama amazing guy, yeah. And he was a friend, a lifelong friend of mine. I mean, I knew him before he went to Zambia. I knew him when he was in Itchim, when, when we used to go to the dances together. It's incredible. But it was, it was amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, because you don't realise these kind of friendships you make way back when you're very young, and they turn up later on in life. And it's incredible how you kind of plug back in. Can I just, for for listeners' point of view, I want to just make sure I've got a little bit of the roadmap that's missing. So we've got you kind of doing the tailoring. You were doing the groups. You were going great guns in London. You were making good money, good coin. You've had the lovely vehicles, yeah. I imagine, great girls on the arm, all that sort of stuff. How did you change from being the tailor to being the gunsmith and owning the shop? What was that all about? Well, because I loved fishing. I loved fishing and shooting. And when it and the guy that was owned the shop was a lovely old boy, Duncan Cree. Um, but he was a funny old boy. He'd been all through the war. He'd been in France and Italy, and that. he had all, used to have all these wonderful plates of war scenes and everything that he brought back from the army. And I used to spend, because it, it, it was just around the corner from where my tailor shop was, I used to spend a lot of time in there. And, and one day he said, oh, I've had enough of this. I'm thinking of retiring. I said, oh, I'd love to have an opportunity. And, and I, I really, at that time, all my money was tied up. I mean, I, it was one of those things where I thought, and so I, I said to my brother, would you be interested in coming in with me? And he said yes, and so we both got into it together. And because uh, he he was still working at the International Com uh, Tabulating Company ICL, so I ran the shop for six months on my own to get it going because I knew about guns and 
fishing and that. And then he came and joined me, which gave me more time to go out and source customers that I'd been making suits for in the 60s. People like Adnan Khashoggi and um, uh, Al Zuhair. Yeah, because you were already in those circles, weren't you? You were sort of. Yeah, it's all about net- networking. And if you can believe, in the 60s in London, I mean, it was amazing. I used to go to the Playboy Club. I made suits for the manager of the Playboy Club. He introduced me to all these different people. And those Arabs in those days, they lived in um, they lived in a square, um, can't think where, beautiful square. I mean, the houses there today are like 150 million. In those days, they were like four to five million. And uh, Harab Al-Zuhair had two of them knocked into one. He married Kamala Dam's security uh, officer for King Fahd. He married his daughter, Sarah. And as a wedding present, they bought him a yacht. I think it was about 200 foot long. It was called Sarah Blue. And they gave that to him for a wedding present. Could you ever imagine, though, when you were kind of at school, right? And, you know, back then, of course, Never. You, you, well, that's the point. Like, like for me, it's just, I, I, I do understand the story because my dad was like, he was brought up in the back streets of Glasgow, couldn't read or write, you know what I mean? But he went and joined the British military and they trained him and they got him, taught him to read and write. And he had an amazing life around the world, travelling. And in fact, he died at 58 as well. No soldier gets that old. You know, that's the problem with them. But anyway, but the point I was just going to make was, did you ever imagine when you were a wee kid, you know, sort of reading your, your dandy comic by the gaslight, you know, of the the, the, the gas works across the road that just got <laughs> blown up or whatever, you know. But you know what I'm saying? Did you ever imagine when you were young, did you ever dream of that type of life? No, no. I mean, I, I we when we lived in Scotland, we might, because we, we, they had their beds in the walls. That's right. They had a, a curtain across, you know. And at the, at the bottom of our, uh, our, there was a rope works. It was Union Street, Montrose. It was right opposite the uh, the park, park where the park hotel was. And it, Union Street went all the way down at the bottom. There was an old mill down there, which they used as a prisoner of war place. Really? We could come out of our, our, our little, up, we were upstairs, one floor upstairs. We could come out there, walk down there, go across the links, the, the golf links. Yeah. And we were right on the beach and all the salmon nets used to be out into the sea. And, oh, it was just a different way. It was just a different way of, and there's lots of pictures on there of us when we were kids, like with my sisters and brothers in Scotland. I mean, it, they were just amazing times. And right next to the the, the uh, harbour there, there was a Chivers Jam factory. I remember it well, uh, actually, Montrose, because I was obviously born in Scotland and we lived on the East Coast. We lived in Dundee, of course. That's where oh, the- it's just down from Montrose, yeah. yeah. So that's where the marmalade's made. Yeah, did you ever go to Rossi Castle? Yeah, we went to Rossi Castle when we were kids. I mean, it was a beautiful life. I mean, I, I totally relate to what you're saying. That East Coast of Scotland, definitely during the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, is the holiday part of Scotland. People go there and have their yeah. caravans at uh, Burnt Island yeah. and King Horn, you know. Which yeah, is, yeah. yeah, fabulous. Well, Rossi Castle was an amazing place and Chivers Jam Factory, they had all of their strawberry fields up there and their grassby fields. And um, this is an absolutely 100% true story. The Messersmiths used to strafe that coast a lot. And they always used to pick on, try and get Montrose because they thought that Chivers Jam Factory was a munitions factory. And they came down, the Messerschmitt came down, punctured 
all the walls and windows and punched all the jam vats. No. So when we, when we were going to school in the morning, all the jam was running down the road. <laughs> and my, my father on that minesweeper and the MTB, they went out and shot the message to me down. But, you know, the, these sort of stories are really interesting. I can understand why your daughter is saying to you, write a book, Dad, because you've you got to get some of this stuff down. I mean, we're recording this today, which is great. So we can at least get some of it out there. So so really, you had quite an interesting life because Dad was still in the Navy. Did he come out of the Navy after the war, though? Was that, was he demobbed? Yeah. No, I think he had 32 years, but I think he had one broken period in it, which desperately affected his pension. And he came out of the, um, he came out of the Navy um, when we were in Scotland we all came back to Letchworth in Hertfordshire, where we were moved from, uh, uh, when they moved people out of areas in London and, and that, that mum and dad went to Letchworth. Then dad went up to Scotland. We went to Scotland. Then I got, we got all got drafted back to Letchworth. Um, and my dad took a, a, a job as a, a PhD, a postman higher grade. And he worked for them for, oh, I suppose, maybe five, four or five years. He did, he used to go out sometimes in those little Morris A delivery things. I remember them well, yeah. He used to take me with him and he used to say, I'm not supposed to have you in here, get right down. So I used to be, and we used to go around all the villages and those little post box in the wall, we used to open that, take the letters out. I love it. And um, yeah, it, it, I, I had a very, very happy childhood. Really amazing. So did you have any dreams when you were a kid? You know, like when you're kind of dreaming about, you know, reading the Victor comic and you were thinking, God, I'd like to do that, be a pilot or something like that. Did you have any dreams at all of what you were going to do when you left school? Not, not really. I know that I didn't really want I, and I wanted to leave school. I hated school. My sister was head girl. She was brilliant. My brother was also very good he was a draftsman and i didn't and all all the other boys in my class were either going to go to shelvoke s and d shelvoke and jury or icl and be engineers you know and get their hands all dirty and uh, and i thought i'm not going to do that and my dad used to you know the sailors used to have what they call uh bell bottoms that's right he used to he used to cut them up and make us suits is that right yeah he was he could do anything he was an amazing man and and so when I, in fact, that little coat I got in, in that picture, I think he made that coat. And and I um, and I, I thought, I don't want to do all that. I said, Dad, I don't want to. I don't really want to. I don't know what I want to do. And I didn't want to go in a grocery trailer. So I thought, and, and I did like, I liked smart things, like, you know. And so I, I, I said, I'd like, I'll try and be a tailor. And there used to be a, a, a local hospital um a lunatic asylum actually it was it was called Arlesy. yeah they had a they, it was amazing because they had, had bootmakers there they had tailors there they had everything there and one of the tailors that worked there was a guy called arthur miles and he had a business like five streets away or maybe longer than that away from where i was and his daughter was at school and i said your dad's a tailor she said yeah yeah i said can i come and talk to him and i went and talked to him and he got this lovely house. I mean, it was a detached house, but it was it was in a nice street. And he the back room he got as a, a tailoring room with a big bench where he did his cutting, he got his iron and that. And I said, I, I really would like to be a tailor. So he started teaching me how to sew. And then he got a job doing the, uh, it, 
I think he only went in two days a week to the to supervise the other guy that was in charge of the hospital and the tailoring department. And it was a big, I mean, they had a big Hoffman press. They had about four machines in there. So I went over there and learned to hand sew before I started my apprenticeship. Incredible. I was only 14 then. Just shows you though, doesn't it? You had that passion, yeah. you know, that you wanted to do something and somebody was prepared to teach you, hey? And the great thing about it was I wanted to buy myself a, a bike because I love cycling. I used to be mad on cycling. So once I learned to sew and everything, all the boys in those days used to wear what they called peg tops, really narrow trousers. So I used to, for, for, for three and sixpence, I would take there and I got a little machine at home in my bedroom because my, my brother had left, he'd got married. So I had a little machine in, in, in my bedroom, which I turned into a workshop and I could do three pairs a night. So I was earning more at night than I did the first year of my apprenticeship. So the entrepreneur was in you already, man. I mean, gosh. Yeah, I wanted money. I wanted money, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've got to take the girls out to the pally, you know what I mean? It's... <laughs> Yeah, there was, there was, there was, there was, I mean, I say there was only one girl for me. I mean, there was a few. There was only one girl that, I, that really set my heart on fire and, uh, and she was wonderful. And we did, we did finish up getting married, but uh, unfortunately she became alcoholic. And that's a sad thing. If, if you see somebody destroying themselves with alcoholism, it's, it's not good. It's a tough place to be, isn't it? You know, because, you know, you think, uh, you, you think, you know, and, and a lot of the time it's not necessarily you. You try and fix it, don't you? You try and make sure you're there to support. Yeah, but you can't be. You can't be. You can't, you know, you think, I'm, I'm, I'm 20 odd now. I've, I've had a wonderful life up to now. We've got a beautiful house. I've got bought this house when I moved from Eaton Soak. We had a swimming pool. We had all, it was absolutely fabulous. But I, I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't stand going home to it every night, like you know. And I'm not. She was a wonderful, lad, so beautiful. What was her name? Mary. Mary. What Mary? Okay. And how did you guys meet? Well, <laughs> I was working in Hitchin uh, at my apprenticeship. I used to catch the bus down every day, and I was walking along um, Bancroft, and there was an apple core there, and I. I kicked it and as she came around the corner, it hit her on the ankle. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah. And and she went bright red and she didn't want anything to do with me. And I suppose I, I, I chased her for about a year. You were determined, <laughs> eh? Yeah, yeah. And we finally finished up together. And uh, yeah, it was a wonderful. It was a while, while it was good, it was good. But when it was bad, it was really bad. And, you know. Yeah, you often hear that. You only you? live your life once, you know. It, it, I mean, I'm I'm fortunate. I've got to 85 this month, St George's Day. I've got to 85. If I if I get another six, I don't care if I don't get another six months. I, I've I've had amazing an amazing life. Um, there's lots of things that I I don't I don't regret anything. But there's lots of things that I'd wish I'd done that I haven't done. Yeah. What what like? Well, I wished I could have. I wished I could have made it work with her. I wish I, I wished I could have. I, I wished I could have had the the nurse nerve to stay and face all. But in the end, you know, when you're working like night, I mean, sometimes when we lived in Eaton Soaking, sometimes I used to sleep on the workbench in the shop because I was so tired to drive all the way home, which was 20 miles, and drive all the way back. And, and, and I just used to get, oh, I just used to think, I don't need a life where I'm getting all this aggravation. 
I'm either going to have a life of misery and aggregation but with somebody I love or I'm going to forsake this person I love and, and get a life of my own, which I did. Yeah, you know, and I think it's self-preservation in the end. You know, there's only so much you can do for your partner and ultimately you made that decision. And did it turn out okay in the end for you because you managed to... Well, it did. It did. I, 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 I met somebody else who didn't last very long. Um, but I stayed friends with Mary right up to the day that she became bedridden and, and, did, and died. I mean, I used to go and see her. Sometimes she used to give me a thick ear and tell me I was, you know, a pain in... Her favourite word was a pain that I was a pain, but I persevered and, and I, she became bedridden for the last year of her life. But I used to go and see her and she used to look at me and say, to Hayley, my daughter, she'd say, who's he? And then she used to sort of smile at Hayley and look at me and, she, and, she, and she, then she'd look at me and say, pain. <laughs> but she was a wonderful, she was, she was so beautiful. I mean, and she was just a wonderful lady. And she would do anything for anybody. Well, you've got some good memories, and that's important, isn't it? You know, oh, so, unbelievable. Yeah. And often the people you love dearly, you know, because they go off the rails and they can't really get their life back together, they can't, at the end of the day, pull yeah. you down because there's got to be self-preservation. You've got to stay there for the kids. You've got to do something with your life. So I don't think, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. hearing what you say, I don't think you ever lost the love for her. That's for sure. You just couldn't live with no, her. No, I didn't. I didn't. And... uh she was amazing. I mean, we we did so many, um, and we started travelling when we'd been together a few years. We started travelling. I mean, in, I think in 1963 we caught the plane from Heathrow, which was a prop job. We went to Mallorca, and uh, yeah, it was amazing, really. Um, a few years later, we went to uh, we drove down. I started doing some business with a a guy in Rome, Frankie Lucci. And uh, I drove, in fact, it was when, who was the guy that took over when Ford was the president of America, wasn't That's he? right, yeah, because Ford came in after Nixon, wasn't it? Nixon, yeah. Well, I, I, I just bought a brand new um, Carmen Gear Ford. Very nice, very nice. Which which one was it? Was it the, the Zephyr type one or was it the kind of console kind of Ford Granada type? It was a console. It had a, a sloping roof with a black roof and grey sort of like doors and I I drove down to uh, this guy wanted to buy some English guns and I had a boot full of guns and I drove all the way down to Rome well, wait a minute one second you drove all the way to Rome with a boot full of guns you couldn't do that these days could you well, well no you couldn't but then I, I used to think I didn't used to hide them I used to say look I've got this this is my license and I did it properly um and he, he finished up buying a couple of them so I had to go back with them you have to have them on what they call a carny. Yes, I know what you so mean. So that you yeah. can shoot yeah. them out and then you can take them back in. Um, yeah, and it's amazing. And then another year, Mary and I went down to Venice and we stayed in the Hotel, Hotel Daniele. Love it, love it. We're right next to the Doge's Palace. Yeah, I, I've had some wonderful times, you know. So you just got to look at the good times and think about, I've got wonderful memories and that's what keeps me going. <laughs> well, you know, for somebody of your age, you know, you're now in your mid-80s. I mean, I think you've got incredible energy. I mean, I know you've got a few health issues, which you would expect to be in your mid-80s, but you're still going. Yeah, this, this, this is one of yeah, them. Yeah, well, no, it, well, look at me in my 50s. That's starting to appear as well now. Look, I'm on the slippery slope, you know. Before the... <laughs> How long have you been in Canada? I've been in Canada for about 12 years now. Well, before lockdown over here, 
I weighed 14 and a half stone. No, serious. Serious, yeah. I was down, I was 14. I used to walk into town every day. My feet were getting bad then because of the diabetes. But after lockdown, I came here and I didn't do the exercise I did and over it. And in, my daughter's a fantastic cook, unbelievable. So I've just piled it on, my, you know. Yeah. And my grandsons were amazing. My eldest grandson uh, finished in the top 29 of the uh, the desert marathon in Morocco. Oh, seriously? He went over there and he, he finished 29th. Incredible. That, that's a tough one to, to do. Yeah. He's a tough lad. And, and his brother's tough as well. In June, his brother's going to go and do the mountain range in Corsica from one end to the other. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Tony, I want you to just give us a picture of your life in the 60s again, just to sort of remind people, you know, you were the tailor for the groups. I mean, bottom line. I mean, there was many of you, but you were one of the few, you know. Um, yeah. Sum, sum up the 60s for us. What, if, what was the essence of, of that decade, do you think? What did it really bring to Britain and what did it do for you? It was, a, it was an amazing era because there didn't seem to be all of the trouble like there is with um, uh, terrorists. And um, it was just a kind of easygoing period. And if you were prepared to work, you could make money. And, and I was very fortunate that Vic wanted me to make him a suit, so I made him a suit. And it just snowballed from there. I mean, once I'd done one, it all come along. I mean, he introduced me to Bobby V. He introduced me to the searchers. And I mean, I used to go and fit Bobby V in the Mayflower Hotel in Barclay Square. And he became a very good friend. Well, like I was saying to you, that guy, Dave Clark from Cambridge Radio, about 15 years ago, he was doing a, a session like you're doing with me, but he was doing it with Bobby V in America. He, he, he heard that I was a tailor and made suits for him. And uh, he got in touch with me, he said, would you talk to him? He said, I said, yeah, of course I would. So I was in between offices. So I got to this office, sitting in the boardroom and um, uh, Cambridge Radio come on. And he said uh, to Bobby V, Bobby, he said, uh, I've got a chap in here who thinks he knows you. He's, an, he's a Tony Bone. And he said, oh, hello, Tony. He said, he's my tailor. That's great. So it? it was, it was, yeah, it was lovely. And of course, the, the, the managing director of the, of the company and, and one of the top investors, lovely man, Richard Wright, who finished up in Africa with me, they were all quite surprised. And it was it was kind of a really nice feeling, you know. It's lovely to hear that. And and, and somehow I get the feeling that you, you not only just did their sort of suits at the end of the day, you actually became very much ensconced into their lives and almost like a confidant, oh, a confidant in many ways, a good friend, eh? Yeah, I used to go to the parties and uh, and what used to go, they, they, Vic had very good friends with the officers at Ricelip, American Air Force Base, and, and they used, he used to invite the, the guys over there. And when there was a party going, uh, there was another guy called Alan Hawkshaw, who was an amazing musician, and he used to play all of the music for lots of backing groups for the shadows and all that. Look him up, Alan Hawkshaw, an incredible man. He was a friend of Tony Hatch's and um, he, and I made suits for Tony Hatch as well. Oh my goodness, man. We've got so many stories to string along. Listen, I'm, I'm going to leave you to it uh, because I know that I'm running out of time as well, but I think, okay. I think we're definitely going to reconvene in the very near future. We'll get the podcast out to the listeners. Whenever you like, because I'd like to talk to you about when, when we get a chance, 
I'd like to talk to you about the artist Peter Blake and Gordon House, because they were the ones that did the um, uh, Sergeant Pepper's art. And Gordon, I went to school with Gordon. Well, I'll tell you what, it won't take more than a five minutes to talk about that. So let's let's talk about that. So how did you get to know Peter Blake then? Well, Gordon House lived in the same street as I did. And we used to play together when we were kids. And used to, and he, he was another one that liked shooting and fishing. But he was a dedicated artist. And he went to, uh, uh, he worked for ICL doing their graphics. Then he went to, uh, I can't think of the name, I think of it, but they were banner makers. And he used to do all these artwork on these banners. And then, then he went to teach at Luton Art School, Luton College of Art. And he became very prolific. And then he used to do, because in those days, it wasn't like it is with the computers. He used to do what they call paste-ups. Yeah. And he used to do, he used to do all, all the paste-ups for the catalogues for Christie's, uh, Sotheby's, Askenazi. He used to do all of that work for all of these people. And he became very, very popular. And he, was a, and he had art shows at the Waddington Gallery in Cork Street. And he was a lovely guy. And I, I made his suits as well in the end. But he introduced me to Peter Blake. And, and like two years ago, his son, Kerry, is also a fabulous artist. If you get a chance, it's C-E-R-I, House. If you look him up on, the, on, on Google and that, you'll see he's a phenomenal artist. He does a lot of work for Peter Blake now. And a couple of years ago, my, one of my bank managers wanted to meet Peter Blake, so Kerry arranged it. And we went to... Peter's studio in Hammersmith. Wow. It was amazing. It's incredible. I've met Peter many times in Gordon's studio. Oh, well, I was going to say, because he, he, so he's still going, Peter Blake, then. He's still doing stuff. Oh, yeah. Yes. Peter Blake's still going. Oh, Peter Blake's an incredible man. And, and one of the guys that, that runs the Royal Academy, I can't think what his surname is, it'll come to me, but he was one of, uh, do you remember the Jury and the Blockheads? Oh, and Jury and the Blockheads, yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the guys that's friends of Peter Blake's and runs the Royal Academy, he was in Ian Jury's band. Oh, what a small! So I got to meet, I got to meet all those as well. Oh gosh, never made suits. No, I was going to say that you took the next question out of my mouth. So who haven't you met in the echelons of? Well, yeah, just sort of like you know, and of course my tailoring days were over then. I used to visit Gordon had a beautiful studio in Islington, um, Highbury New Park. Beautiful old, wonderful big house with a downstairs studio. It was just an amazing house. And I used to love going there. And he was always so kind and lovely to me. And he was obviously he was a very busy man. You know, I know some people used to call on him and he used to say, sorry, I haven't got time. But he always used to say, I'm busy. I say, don't worry, Gordon, I'll see you later. And I never used to take advantage, which he appreciated. Fantastic. He used to come fly fishing with me and shoot him. Wonderful. Oh, man, oh, man. Well, listen, I, I, this is definitely going to be another hitch up. I think we've definitely got other things to talk about for sure. And um, I, I just really appreciate some of the stories. Whatever you like. Yeah, no, it's been wonderful, wonderful. Hey, listen, I've got one final question before we go. Um, and this is going to be an interesting one for you because I think, you know, going back in time, it might be interesting to see if you have a different perspective. If you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? I can think of a funny answer, but that won't be I'm right. Okay with you. I'm okay know. with the funny answer as well as the, the serious answer. Go for it. Wish I'd stayed chatting up birds earlier. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 
No, I I don't know really. If I, I used to love, I used to do a lot of cycling. I love cycling. We used to ride our bikes from Hitchin to to London on a Saturday to get a haircut. How far is that? Twenty miles or something? Twenty-seven. Holy mackerel! You were doing you were doing the Tour de Bloody France. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> <laughs> crazy days, but wonderful. Yeah, so so would you have, you know, say you, you met yourself on a London bus when you were 18 or even 16, I don't know. I mean, would you have any advice for yourself now that you've got all this experience of life? No, just live it the way you've lived it. You know, what else could you do? I mean, you say get on a London bus. I got on a, I got on a bus from, from uh, school one day and there were two lovely ladies on there who lived opposite twins, lived opposite us. I went for a... a 30, 25 years later, I, I was in Cape Town with my daughter. We went to Hout Bay, sat in this restaurant, and one of these beautiful twins, Peggy Waters, was sitting at a table opposite. No way. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Incredible, incredible how you meet people, eh? Yeah, things happen, you know, you don't... I think you've got to have a, a good memory and a good face for recognising things, you know. And yeah, I've been... I'm, I've, listen, I've loved it. And I've enjoyed talking to you, David, as well. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And and for me, this has been something that's been very unique. And and look, yesterday, we didn't even know each other, did we? No. <laughs> the wonders of modern technology, you know. As as John Lennon as John Lennon would say, no, but now we're best friends, like you know what I mean. Absolutely. I used to love his very wry comments. You know, it's the gills. It's only the gills he'd come out with. It. He used to he used to say, when I used to go into Wembley with all my patterns, he used to turn to the others and say, hey, up, lads, here comes ragas. <laughs> hey, just out of interest before we go, right, who was the tailor that was in the Hard Day's Night that was measuring them up? Do you remember? That might have been Dougie Millions. I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, because he, he was he had dark hair, quite slicked back, and yeah. I would say he's probably yeah. in his late thirties, maybe early forties, something like that. Maybe. Yeah, I'll have a look. I'll have a look on the on uh, my my very close friend of many years. His wife was in. Is that that one where they were running into King's Cross Station? It was actually Marlebone Station. They filmed it in Marlebone. Well, my 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 friend's wife was one of the extras running in. Oh, she was the one that were chasing them through the taxis and out the other side and down the street. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. We, we're going to have to be part two, Tony Bone and his, his life in the 60s. We're going to have to figure that out. Hey, just before we go, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd love to share with us? Well, just uh, you're, you're on Instagram, obviously. Just check my Instagram page, uh, Bone833. We will do. We will do. I bet there's some nuggets. And that, that'll, give you, that'll give you an idea. Okay. It sounds like a plan. Okay, Tony. Well, it's been a real pleasure and I'm uh, and wonderful. Have you recorded this? Have yeah, you? I have recorded it. So I'm going to send it to you as well. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Dave, it's been a pleasure. It's been great, man. I, I love this. You know, it's interesting how, like you say, we didn't know each other yesterday. I just happened to see that photograph of the Baron Knights and your comment was like the fourth one down. And you said, I made their suits. I thought, I've got to speak yeah. to that guy if you made their suits. And well, if you look at the last one, you'll see the suits that I made them that they wore in Las Vegas on the gambling tables. They were the last suits I ever made for pop groups. There you go. There's a legacy, eh? And I bet they still survive somewhere, eh? I don't know. I, I looked at some pictures of Butch today. I know Duke died. Baron died. Uh, I don't know what happened to Dave Ballinger. He left the group. But uh, I had I had uh, a reunion with Vic Sutcliffe and Peanuts 
two years ago. They came over for Vic's 80th birthday. Oh, wonderful. I bet that was a good old knee wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was lovely. I mean, it was in a pub and it was just, it was just lovely. There was uh, Hawkshaw was there, Alan Hawkshaw that was there and uh, Peanuts and, and uh, Derek Quinn from Freddie and the Dreamers. Oh, seriously? And Bernie. Yeah. They were all there. Uh, yeah, I used, to, I used to be a good friend of Bernie, the, the drummer from Freddie. I never made anything for Freddie and the Dreamers. I made a lot of stuff for Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. You, no, are you serious? Yeah. He lived in the most beautiful house in ha- uh, Harrow in London. He was incredible. He was amazing. I loved shaking all over. I mean, he was such a cutting edge yeah, guy. I mean, he had the did, yeah. he had the leathers on to start with in the late fifties, early sixties. But yeah. he did, he died in the mid sixties, didn't he, in a car crash? Yeah, he died. Yeah, he, yeah, he died. Yeah. But I made him. I, I made him a couple of sports jackets and a suit. Oh and I used to go to his house, and it was amazing. I enjoyed it. You know, it was. It's been an eventful life. Well, you know what? It's been an eventful event actually speaking to you because I, I didn't realise how many nuggets of gold you had. I had an inkling there'd be some there, but it's been wonderful and I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you. And would you be the honour or give me the honour of being a guest again on another track? Would you do it again? Of course I would, Dave, any time. That's really kind of you. Because i got... I've enjoyed Yeah, I've got loads of questions to ask you for still. I've got like, as long as well. You'll have even more when you look at my Instagram page. Okay, fair enough then. Well, Tony Ben, I want to thank you so much for coming on to on another track. It's Like I say, it's been a sheer pleasure and I'm sure it won't be the last time that we speak. Cheers. Take care. You look after yourself. All the best. All right, cheers. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Tony Bone, Taylor extraordinaire to the stars of the 60s. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. <laughs>